On this episode of Musonomics, at every speaking engagement I go to, say, Are you in the radio business? Can I put up a picture of an old cathedral radio? Or are you in the audio business? That's Steve Goldstein of Amplify Media, one of the guests this episode on the future of radio in music consumption and discovery. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. I think about radio a lot. Having grown up in the radio industry and I started my career as a DJ, although I haven't worked at a radio station for some time, the interplay between radio and music has always fascinated me. As new competitors to terrestrial radio have emerged, from satellite radio to the rise and fall of music downloads, to the explosion in on-demand and ad-supported streaming, I've become more concerned about whether and how AMFM radio can maintain its primacy in the music consumption ecosystem. Radio insiders have always talked about the strength of their strong local brands, their call letters, their dial positions, and their slogans, you know, what listeners call their stations and the strength of the listeners' relationships with their favorite stations. But given the listening shift to ubiquitous streaming platforms, I wonder how commercial AM-FM radio can compete with pure-play digital music services, which have fewer and different constraints. Back in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s, I used to go to radio conventions and imagine that someday in the future, we would discover how strong and resilient radio's local brands really are when every digital audio signal in the world will be on a somewhat level playing field in the car or on your phone. And someday, when the barriers that insulated radio from competing media come down, we were going to really find out. I think that time is now. So I wrote a paper about it. You can download it free at musonomics.org. But as a college professor and a parent, I had a theory that the youngest radio consumers, sometimes called Generation Z, young people born after millennials, don't use radio the same as previous generations. I also thought that the way radio pays for the music it uses has acted as a kind of an economic disincentive for radio to invest in its own digital future. And to be clear, AMFM radio broadcasters in the U.S. do pay a tiny amount, about 4% of revenues, to songwriters and music publishers. But American AMFM stations are exempted from paying anything to the artists who perform the music or their record companies. This exemption doesn't apply to digitally delivered radio streams like SiriusXM or Pandora, or even the digital streams of AM-FM radio broadcasters themselves. Look, I believe the following things are true. AM-FM radio has been a resilient medium in the internet era, but that resilience is weakening. The youngest music fans, Generation Z, those born in 1995 or later, are embracing digital formats at the expense of radio use. Having grown up as true digital natives, 
this generation is way less interested in AM-FM radio than the older generations. But more than anything else, I still care about and love radio. I spent my formative years in radio and have been wondering about its future for a long time. In this episode of Musonomics, we'll focus on the challenges facing radio from a digital native generation using broadcast differently, and how a lack of investment by broadcasters in their digital future may impact their status in the music economy. But let's have some fun. Up until now, AMFM radio has remained the dominant force in U.S. music listening. And when the numbers are seen in the aggregate, radio listening arguably remains relatively stable. But competition for audience and attention is mounting. Edison Research's Share of Air report for the second quarter 2017 shows that AMFM radio is responsible for over half of all time spent listening to music in the U.S., among listeners 18 and older. But radio's audience is increasingly dissatisfied with the medium. Music Watch researches how consumers interact with music. Their Music Monitor survey from January 2017 benchmarked AM-FM radio against streaming services regarding feature satisfaction. I spoke with Russ Krupnik of Music Watch to learn more about the data set used in his research. Russ, at a at a high level, how was the Music Watch data put together that we used in the uh, in the radio paper? We have done a series of surveys dating back to uh, two thousand and five. Uh, all of those surveys have very large sample sizes, so we're we're talking to about five thousand consumers. Uh, of which probably about 700, 750 would be teens. And we asked them a detailed list of questions about their uh, music listening and consumption habits. What did the data show? At least with respect to teens and listening, what we've seen from several surveys is a significant drop-off in their engagement with music on broadcast radio. Over how much time are we talking about? Well, you know, it depends, at least over a decade. I mean, just if we, if we kind of round the numbers a little bit, at least over a decade. And how much of a decline are we talking about? Well, if you went back to 2007, let's say about 10 years ago, you would find that about 80% of teenagers were listening to music on AM, FM radio mm-hmm. in the past three months. Uh, if you ask that same question by 2014, it was down to 56%. So that's a fairly significant drop. Mm. And although it may seem obvious, what did you see was the source of the decline? Well, certainly, uh, as one has declined, uh, I'll give you a for example. If you take a look at internet radio, which is really the not necessarily the oldest form of streaming, but certainly in Pandora, the the most established long-term form of streaming. Um, back in in 2005, you probably had 30% of teenagers who were using uh, internet radio. Mm-hmm. Now it's actually surpassed uh, surpassed broadcast radio. It's up to about 60%. So you had the incursion of people listening to iPods. You had uh, Pandora coming along. 
and then certainly you had the slew of YouTube, Spotify, and then Apple. And I think certainly one, one element uh, relates to the technology that young people have is, uh, you know, over that same time period, the, the penetration of smartphones has gone up quite significantly. So whereas streaming music used to be very fixed because I needed a, a laptop or a PC to do it, you know, now it's become very mobile as, as kids got smartphones. What do we think are the implications of this study about the future of radio listening? Well, I think the implications are really stark. From the perspective of, in a traditional world, we could depend on the next generation acting a lot like the previous generation. As they would go to work, they would get an automobile and they would listen to AM, FM radio. But there is a dramatic change in the technology, and that's going to really impact what we see with younger people and music engagement. For example, that person who is in high school right now, when she graduates and gets a car and commutes to her job, uh, in the morning it's going to, when she gets in on a Monday morning, it's going to say, Hi, Lauren, good morning. Would you like to listen to Discover Weekly? And by the way, don't forget to buckle your seatbelt. That's very different from the technology that we've had for the last 50 years in, in automobiles. And on top of that, a lot of where, where young people listen to music right now is at home because that's where they are. They're, they're not at work. But look at what's changing at home. Um, instead of turning on that, you know, what we'll call the traditional transistor radio, they're talking to Alexa. Mm. Uh, they're talking to Google Home. Pretty soon they'll be talking to, to Apple devices. And they're not asking where, you know, can I listen to Hot 97? They're the same thing. Can I listen to Discover Weekly on Spotify or find me the latest Bruno Mars album or so on? So I think because of technology, we, we, we are going to see a dramatic inflection point that will impact younger people and their, their relationship to radio. Radio still has great reach, and most of what's on radio is music, but the music industry is now less dependent on radio as a sole source of music discovery and exposure. As the music market accelerates its transition to a streaming-driven access model, radio's contribution to music discovery in all formats has declined significantly. Radio is now less of a tastemaker and more of a validator of the biggest hits often discovered on streaming music platforms first. Younger music fans are not turning to radio first for music discovery, and the music industry is responding. Streaming services like Spotify have ascended in their importance to record labels as a vehicle for exposing fans to new music and changing the calculus of label promotion efforts. Historically, labels' promotional focus was nearly exclusively on music radio, Currently, the traditional return on investment on radio spins to sales is arguably less compelling to labels than streaming, where music discovery, consumption, and monetization are all integrated in one place. Streaming services, after all, have to pay labels for the music they play. Radio's exemption from having to pay for the recordings it plays has been defended by the radio industry for its promotional value. It's indisputable that radio's role in the promotion of music is still important, but dramatically lower than it may have been five or ten years ago, 
especially among younger, active music consumers, and it's never been clearer. Radio has to innovate now to remain relevant as a source of music discovery. We'll be right back with Steve Goldstein. Back in the day, radio was insulated from disruption by its stranglehold on in-car listening. However, drivers are buying new cars at a faster rate than ever now, with U.S. vehicle sales in 2016 showing a seventh consecutive year of sales gains. These cars and trucks come with more installed options for commercial-free satellite radio, hands-free connection to mobile devices, and installed digital music services in connected cars. The car is ceasing to be AMFM Radio's exclusive walled garden of captive audiences and limited choices. Steve Goldstein was a founder and head of programming for Saga Communications, which owns a lot of radio stations. He is now head of Amplify Media. Steve Goldstein, welcome to Musonomics. Good to be here today. We've known each other for a long time, and you have been involved in, but not just involved in, you have been a leader in local radio programming for, let's just say, a number, <laughs> a number of decades. Thank you for that. <laughs> a couple of years ago, you started doing something else. Let's talk about what that is. So after doing programming for, and I'll put the number on it, I'm, I'm, I'm going all the way in on that, 30, 35 years. Um, I was looking at my science projects at home. I have three science projects, a now 28-year-old, a 26-year-old, and a 19-year-old. And you don't need a lot of surveys to see where things are going when you have kids in the house and they are using media differently. And, uh, and, and I've always been a bit of a futurist, always been interested in where the puck is going. And I thought on-demand audio has to happen. It's happened on the video side, much slower on the audio side, but the smartphone is an entertainment hub. And so that changes everything. And I thought, put the flag out there. And so I started Amplify Media, a company where we focus on strategy and content in that order. Uh, that's what I did with radio. I developed strategies and then we executed with the content. And, uh, and that's morphed into uh, a company that we started in April, which is a, um, a merger of brain power with Jacobs Media uh, and takes advantage of the smartphones. And that's called Sonic AI. So we've got the, I've got those two things going. You gave a talk recently in which you said uh, one minute out of every five of audio that is consumed happens now on the smartphone. Can you put a little context around that? Uh, absolutely. So, so if it's one minute out of five on the smartphone today, you can see where the trajectory is. And so that includes owned music. That includes streamed music. That does not include a lot of AM-FM because AM-FM doesn't have a presence. There is no radio on the smartphone. So podcasting is a part of that. There's just a lot in the ecosystem, but radio listening goes down 
among those smartphone listeners. And and so you you can you can see where where the arc is going. And of course, when you look at it by lower demographics, eighteen to thirty four specifically, it's about a third of all audio that's being listened to via the smartphone already. So the seventeen billion dollar question, <laughs> or fourteen, depending on how you measure it. Fair enough. Is um, what should radio do? In the, in the face of all of this. And, and I should say that really what we're talking about is AM, FM, commercial, terrestrial broadcasters. Uh, public radio is not without its challenges. It does have some challenges, but they have kind of figured out how to be pretty good storytellers on the podcast platform, for example. Commercial AM, FM broadcasters have a different set of issues. What are the things that they can be doing now? So, so, so let, let's talk about the public thing for a moment because it's instructive. Um, they, they have developed an on-demand audio strategy, and some of it is luck and some of it is skill and some of it is iteration, but, but the strategy is pretty clear at this point, and that is they can downage the same content that's on broadcast and their broadcast median, I believe is 54, but their podcast initiatives are 15 years younger. Mm. So that's a fascinating sort of strategy to introduce content to another generation because they produce wonderful content, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people will not go to the FM linear signal to hear it. And they also have original content. That's quite instructive for the commercial radio business, which has not had the appetite really beyond time shifting. Oh, we could take the morning show and we'll throw it into a three-hour podcast. People are going to love that. Uh, Not so much. They they, they don't love that. That's a lot of work and a lot of not great content to have to get through. So, So that may not be the winning strategy. But the notion is correct that there is content that can be repurposed. Radio's never been able to do that before. I mean... They, they put it over the air, they went off to the dwarf planet Pluto, and that was the end of it. Right. Uh, now they can, they can you know, take a bit that was a great morning show bit and say, if you missed it at 7.15 this morning, you can get it whenever you want. That, that's the easy pickings, mm-hmm. okay? They're not even doing that well yet. Mm. Then we move into clips, short-form audio, TV, you know, doing a good job, YouTube, uh, I say YouTube, YouTube doing a great job with that. Um, there's a clip culture and audio. We don't have that yet. So that's, that's another area. And then original content, which is, which is the Holy grail. And that is, I think harder for commercial radio to do because there's fewer people in the hallways now. And, and, uh, you know, I've been at, uh, shows like the morning show Boot Camp, and, and these are eager, young, strong, I mean, you look at them and you say, there is a future in the radio business. These people are good. Yeah. But their eyes go rolling back in their heads when <laughs> when you say, well, and you also need to do a podcast. They're like, oh, my God, I'm doing Facebook and Twitter. I'm the social media monster. I'm prepping my own show. I'm doing, you know, and now I got to do a podcast. So you run into that internal culture issue of how important is it? How much time is it going to take? And who's going to do it? Well, the priorities 
need to come from on high, yes, right? I mean, radio, for the most part, is now a highly consolidated business. There are a handful of companies that own and operate most of the radio stations in most of the markets where people are who are listening to this podcast. The priorities and the resources just haven't been allocated then? Well, I, I, the, the priorities are clear. Look, the mission is to make October. And, and so that's job one in all of the broadcast companies. And that's not an easy task today. You mean make the revenue target. Make the revenue number, yes, for, for the month. So, so, so that's not easy. Let's, let's start with that. And the R&D department in a number of these companies doesn't exist. There are companies that are doing it. I mean, you got, you got to look at iHeart and, and say, yes, there's a digital strategy. And it's got bumps and it's hard. And they're up against the Pandoras and the Spotify's, which are arguably way ahead of them. But they are doing it. And so that's admirable and important. And if they don't do it, you know, they just get a little smaller every day. I call it the melting ice cube. Uh, problem. And, uh, you know, every day that ice cube just looks a little smaller. So you need to have your digital strategy. And, you know, Entercom now with CBS, they have a digital strategy. There's some great and smart people involved in that. So you see it in an embryonic sort of way, uh, but, but it is embryonic. It is not pervasive through the business at this point. Most of the innovation that I've seen has come from the private companies, the Bonnevilles and the Hubbards, that are in the position to innovate and experiment. So what are they doing? Uh, they are introducing podcasts. Uh, uh, some of them are, are quite successful. Others are, are early stage, but uh, they are taking the time to think through what fresh content could be like. And I'll give you a great example. This is actually out of Entercom in Boston at WEEI. There's a guy named Kirk Menahan who is hosting mornings, and it's a top morning show, if not the top morning show in the market. And I think he's 32 years old, and he said he wanted to do a podcast, and everybody thought that was a great idea. And, uh, and, and so he launched a podcast called Enough About Me, and it's the perfect companion to the broadcast, which is fast moving and, you know, has to knock down topics in eight minutes and big commercial load and they can't do interviews in that environment, but he can do interviews. And so he does. And that show is doing 40 or 50,000 downloads in Boston. And that's a real number. That's one of the better stories, I think, out of the radio business. And there are others, but that's a good model. So the car is the, the, car. Is the, the number one location for listening to radio and automotive stuff is the number one revenue category for you know, for radio advertising. There has been um, a lot said and written about the the present and future of the connected car. But at some point, is voice interactivity like we're getting on the smart speaker and the connected car where the applications and services that we're now used to getting on our smartphone converge. The, the converging has already been announced. Uh, Ford has their deal with, I believe, Amazon. General Motors has a deal with Microsoft. The voice comes into the car. That seems quite intuitive to me. Mm. Uh, also intuitive to me is the smartphone becomes the entertainment hub in the car. 
And I don't think the car companies are happy about that one bit, by the way. Uh, I don't think they want Apple CarPlay or Google Android Auto in there. But they don't have a choice because they created these horrible infotainment systems that no one could figure out. And Apple came in and went, hey, how about if we make it look like the phone? People know how to do that. And so as you make things simpler and easier to access, that's how you gain users. So the biggest radio companies uh, have placed and are still placing their chips on the table with respect to the connected car and smart speaker apps. For the next level down and the level below that, what should they be thinking about now? What, what, what proactive steps should they be taking in order to ensure that the ice cube doesn't fully melt on their watch? <laughs> yes, uh, great, great, great question. So at every speaking engagement I go to, I say, are you in the radio business? And I put up a picture of an old cathedral radio. Right. Or are you in the audio business? And I don't think it's that big a reach. I mean, once you get past that notion that it has to come out of a transmitter and you start thinking, well, I'm, I'm an audio, I'm a content creator. I can put it out there in any form. That's very liberating. It's also quite smart because now you can start creating more targeted content that fits. And I also think content doesn't transfer easily. It needs to be customized for each platform. And so it does require some thought. I think it's a lazy, it's a lazy wish to say, well, I'll just throw it up on the smart speaker and we'll be okay. Are you optimistic about the future for, I, I don't, I'm not even sure if I ought to be calling them radio broadcasters, but well, for, pe for, for, for companies that have grown up as legacy commercial AM, FM radio companies, are we, are we optimistic? Are we circumspect? Are we pessimistic about, you know, say looking, oh, I don't know, 10 years down the road? Well, well, let me answer it a couple of ways. And, and this may be the scariest part of our entire conversation. The New York Times has a podcast mm -hmm. called The Daily. Mm -hmm. And it does somewhere between half a million and 600,000 people every day. Mm -hmm. It's 20 minutes, so it's bite size. It comes out at 6 o'clock in the morning, so it's coming after morning radio. And it's really good. Mm -hmm. It's really thoughtful. They're not a broadcast company. They've had their own desperate issues and innovation issues, as every other newspaper has had. But they are good at storytelling. They are great at storytelling, and they've learned how to tell stories in audio. They understand that you can't just shove a reporter in a room and talk about it and think you're doing a good job. But they're not the only ones. NPR has a show called Up First, which does exceedingly well. They are talking to a different constituency than the over-the-air audience. Vox Media is introducing one in January. BuzzFeed has already introduced one called uh, Reporting to You. Uh, kind of choppy at the moment, but you can see that it'll get better over time. Uh, I can name a bunch of others. I mean, Snapchat has a deal with NBC where they produce two short, really attractive newscasts per day. These are not normal competitors, and yet they are moving into audio and video. But obviously here we're talking primarily about audio. And so I see that as where the innovation is coming from, not from the radio guys. So 
I think they had better wake up on this one and understand that it's going to be hard to get the audience back. And so when financial resources are being allocated and they are scarce and under pressure, as they are in many radio companies, building new stuff may not be at the top of the list. Well, and I go back to what's happening on the other side. Uh, If you look at TV, they are innovating every day, and it's trial and error, whether it be Netflix, which eight years ago was sending DVDs to people in Omaha and is now the largest television network in the world. And spending six billion with a B dollars in content this year. I mean, that's a network that NBC, ABC, CBS didn't have to contend with just a few years ago, and it's a monster. And so, why is that not some kind of model for for where things are going? And so, the stakes are high at the network, and they're developing their own apps, and they've got their own platforms like Hulu, and they're experimenting with YouTube. And yes, there's the digital dollar, uh, digital pennies over the uh, the analog dollars. But if they don't retain the audience, they don't get to keep the analog dollars. And so they have to innovate on these other platforms. And they are. And some of it will be right and some of it won't. I mean, remember WordPerfect? It was, it mm-hmm. was a great word processing program till mm-hmm. it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So not all these things are going to survive. But you have to have an R&D department. You have to be dedicated to some experimentation. And the good news is on the audio side, I don't even think it's that... Uh, expensive to do these projects, but you need people who are thinking about it all day long because the New York Times is now thinking about it all day long. Steve Goldstein will have to leave it there. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. As a practical matter, the largest radio companies, iHeartMedia, Cumulus, and other large radio companies that achieved scale and acquired hundreds of stations each by borrowing acquisition capital from banks and bondholders, iHeart and Cumulus are reportedly facing imminent bankruptcy or will in the next 12 months. Those large-scale station acquisition platforms were put together under the assumption that radio revenues were going to go up indefinitely, but radio revenue has been flat or declining now for years. Although the broadcast lobby won't admit it, radio is in a tough place. As I wrote in my paper about radio, the medium needs to invest in strong and compelling digital services. If it does, Radio can look forward to a robust future, built on the strong foundation it already has in the marketplace, leveraging its great reach, habitual listenership, local presence, and brands. And if it doesn't, radio risks becoming a thing of the past, like the wax cylinder or 78 RPM record, fondly remembered but no longer relevant to an audience that has moved on. You can download our paper on radio free at musonomics.org. That's our show for this week. Thank you to our guests, Steve Goldstein from Amplify Media and Russ Krupnik from Music Watch. Remember, if you like what you heard, please give us a maximum five stars rating on iTunes and tell your friends and tell us online at musonomics.org or on Twitter at musonomics. The Musonomics Podcast is a production of Musonomics, LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. 
This episode of the Musonomics podcast was produced at NYU Steinhardt by Josh Ahadian, with assistance from Vienna Hoffman and David Slitsky. This episode is in memory of Lonnie Harris. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening.